Upper acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past and present. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of APRA and the National Boards. I'm Tash Miles, and today we're talking about an issue that's relevant to most of us at some point in our lives, the cost of healthcare, and specifically what it means when cost is a barrier to healthcare. It's always important, but it's probably particularly topical currently with inflation rising and most consumers being hit hard with the sharp cost of living increases across the board. And fortunately, I have a fabulous panel of guests with us here today coming from a range of different perspectives, and also they're all from Tasmania. So I'd like to welcome Renata Hughes, who's a consumer advocate, Dr. Chris Sanzaro, a dentist in Northern Tasmania, and Associate Professor Amanda Neal, who's a health economist at the Menzies Institute for Medical Research in Hobart. Welcome. Renata, let's start with you. We're talking today about the cost of healthcare. What connection do you have with that conversation? And could you introduce yourself, please? Yes, hello. So my name is Renata Hughes and I'm a consumer health advocate. But I guess my my journey in healthcare um, has been quite a a long one. Um, So coming from a professional background, having worked in teaching, social work and community development, I then encountered a health journey that was was somewhat negative and and has been greatly impacted by cost of healthcare. Um, So at the moment, as well as being a consumer health advocate, I live with a disability and more than one chronic health condition. I'm on a fixed low income through the disability pension. And as a Tasmanian, I live in a regional area of Australia. So that means at a local level, I live in a socially and economically disadvantaged community, and I also live in public housing. Thanks, Renata. Chris, you're a dentist, and you probably come to this conversation from a different direction. Could you tell us where you work and why you're interested in talking about this, please? My name is Chris. I'm a dentist who owns and runs a dental practice in Launceston. Uh, it employs uh, four other dentists, a couple of hygienists and myself in that practice. Uh, we work across a variety of different socioeconomic groups uh, within that practice. And I've worked in government service as well as uh, private practice over my nearly 20 years in dentistry. I'm also involved in the Australian Dental Association. I'm a federal executive councillor. And so I'm aware of dentistry and access to care issues well outside just my own practice. Um, I bring to it a, an interest in uh, partnering with uh, patients to form long-term relationships and achievable healthcare outcomes for them uh, with their circumstances and working with people in that regard. Thank you, Chris. And Amanda, could you introduce yourself and tell us about the work that you do in relation to the cost of healthcare and its effect on our communities? Um, Thanks, Tash. So my name's Amanda. I'm a health economist and population health researcher at the Menzies, as Tash mentioned. So as a health economist, I'm really interested in in the costs of care, and I look at that from a system level to an individual level. Uh, So I was involved in a national study on the cost of psychosis, for example, I'm also interested in how individuals, um, how costs impact individual decision-making. And those costs are reflected both in terms of the individual consumer, but also how does cost, how does price influence, you know, the supply of health services. It's really important at the moment with with increasing costs of living because certainly out-of-pocket costs are are a major factor. You know, uh, individuals actually contribute a fifth of the cost of of all health expenditure in Australia on an annual basis through out-of-pocket costs. And just to follow on that, um, what did you mean when you spoke about the role of choice in the cost of healthcare? 
I come from an economics background, so it, it is ultimately it's about choices, choices either to um, purchase healthcare or not to purchase healthcare, and cost is or price is a major factor. And certainly, there is data there that costs will influence um, decision making as to whether to actually see individuals. And unfortunately, Chris, cost is is um, the greatest impact is in relation to de dentists, in relation to out-of-pocket costs and the decision not to actually go and see a dentist. Renata, could you talk to us broadly about the costs associated with healthcare and how that might affect, again, the choice to seek healthcare or not? In terms of, of cost factors and decisions, I have hundreds of stories of people who uh, have deferred or, or not engaged in healthcare and then ended up in an acute care situation and I mean, oral health is one of those situations. We know that oral health um, and, and good oral health is a key indicator for um, reducing other chronic diseases such as cardiovascular disease uh, and general health and wellbeing. And yet, for example, even for myself, three weeks ago, I um, had put off for eight months a sore tooth <laughs> uh, and mainly cost related. I went to the dentist and had a filling. It cost me $260. They also did an x-ray, which I wasn't aware they were going to do. And that was an extra cost on top of that. So that took more than 50% of my weekly income um, from my pension that week. So I then, after having paid the rent, which I had to pay because I certainly don't want to become homeless, it left me no money for food or other bills. So you then get into a debt cycle that you have to try and make up with your next pension payment. And that becomes ongoing and cumulative. Uh, and, and even though Centrelink will make, you can get a, a, a small loan, it's, it would cover one episode of care. So there are those sort of individual personal issues, but the structural level, there are issues away about the way that we package care, particularly for chronic health care packages and mental health care packages. The way that, that we structure them are not fit for purpose. So they're not fitted to the person, the person is fitted to the package. Drawing both on your personal experience, but also as a consumer advocate, if you could talk to us about some of the questions that um, people might ask to make it more about the person than about the fitting into the existing system? Questions you might want to, to ask or want to know about, and what I have to say first is that there's an enormous amount of stigma and discrimination associated with discussions around cost of healthcare um, and the fee-for-service system that we have. So again, it's not the provider's fault because they're part of a, a broader system and it's also not the health consumer's um, fault that, that they're not able to understand um, how the system operates and, and what it might cost in totality. So for example, they might be asking questions about what will it cost me each visit and what will be the cost, total cost of treatment for if there's a series of visits such as with a physiotherapist and a program of care. They might ask, will my chronic healthcare package or my mental healthcare package cover the costs? What will I be out of pocket for, for each visit? Uh, can I have a quote for the costs? What are the social costs of any treatment plan? So for example, if I go to a dietitian and they prescribe fresh fruit and vegetables, What's the cost of that on top of my, my living costs and my, my fixed low income? Uh, if I'm going to uh, a podiatrist, the cost of orth orthotic implant, in, inserts in my shoe, a walking stick, a walking frame. Some of these can be leased through uh, government schemes. Others cannot, uh, depending on the needs of the person. 
uh, how can I pay? Do I pay cash? Do I pay by card? Do you have a payment plan? Can I have time to pay? Can I defer the payment until my next pension date, for example? And will there be any hidden costs? For example, will there be a dental x-ray that I wasn't aware of? Will there be a specialist in, uh, maybe providing an injection as part of the appointment for steroids, which is an additional choice, uh, charge at the visit? Other, other additional tests not covered by Medicare, such as allergy testing, for example. So these are all a whole lot of questions that consumers might want to ask. But what I also would say is that it's we have not been uh, health promotion needs have not been met in terms of increasing our health literacy and understanding of how to ask questions, what are the right kinds of questions to ask, and what we can expect from our healthcare services in terms of our healthcare rights, as well as our responsibilities. Mm. And I mean, all of those questions are asked after you've needed potentially to pay for travel to get to the appointment, to take time off work for childcare to attend it. One excellent scenario would be, for example, um, a consumer that I know, a young mother with four children who lives in Brighton, which is a rural area. So the hospital keeps sending appointments for 9am in the morning. <laughs> and of course, if you don't attend a clinic appointments, you're either discharged from the list or you get a rather rude uh, uh, sort of punitive letter. She then, she has to get three buses to get into the city. She has to get her children to school so she's got to get them there early or get someone to do child mining and then take them to school so she can catch the bus to get there on time for the 9am appointment. She then has to have enough money to cover the bus fare. Because she's been in such a rush, she hasn't eaten any breakfast, so she's probably going to need to grab something on the way in, into the, the clinic. Then she's going to have prescriptions from the clinic, which may or may not be fully covered under the pharmaceutical benefits scheme um, and any other additional referrals that she might have to have. So it isn't just it isn't just one thing. It isn't just getting to an appointment. It's multiple steps to be able to, to even access the healthcare service. And then within the service, there are another whole lot of factors that come into play. Mm. Chris, um, you spoke in your intro about the importance of um, working in collaboration with patients. Um, I guess my first question is, do, do you hear some of these questions that Renata has um, said that people should be empowered to ask? And, and what do you say and how do you answer them? Absolutely, we hear those questions all the time. Um, the, the stigma around cost discussions is, is something that really shouldn't be there. It, it should just be cited as one of the barriers. We have multiple barriers presented to us when people turn up to trying to access care. Uh, it could be their physical ability to get into a dental chair. It could be time away from work, as we've discussed. Uh, it could be what's already existing in their mouths, what's already going on there. It'd be ideal if everyone walked in with uh, 32 perfectly happy, healthy teeth, and we had to do very little to them because we've got a great foundation to start with, but we don't have that. And so it's just another uh, factor in, in considering what appropriate treatment options there are. It shouldn't have that stigma or taboo. And certainly it, it's easy to say that coming from a perspective where I don't have to worry about that cost myself. But if that discussion is very open and honest right from the start, it makes it a lot easier for everyone to be involved. So those questions that Renata had are fantastic. They should start at in the first place, when you get in contact with the health service, there should be information available over the phone to give an idea. We're working in health, there's a whole bunch of things that are unpredictable. We don't know what we're going to be faced with. How big's the hole in the tooth? Is the tooth salvageable? All these sorts of things. And so giving a definitive price is very difficult, but giving a range of price options, so it's not a surprise at the start of the appointment, because it can be that shock factor of, oh, hang on, how am I going to do that today? And 
that then raises the emotional level, which makes it harder to then continue on conversation of, oh, panic in the chair, how am I going to cope with this? So if the information's there from the start, it's easier for the practitioner to work with that as well. Mm, it, it, and it's important to be easier because going to the dentist can be really expensive. It's an expensive service to provide, for sure. We're running a, a, a mini hospital environment with sterilising uh, equipment and the cost of the equipment and a high level of staff and labour in Australia is expensive and you're not just paying for the dentist, you're paying for the assistant, you're paying for the receptionist and for the sterilising uh, staff as well. So there is a significant cost that comes with dentistry and, and that's unavoidable. And so one of the really important things to factor in is having that cost discussion early on. What are the maintenance costs going to be? What are the hidden costs likely to be in the future? And we don't have a crystal ball, unfortunately. It's uh, not able to look at well into the future and say, hey, this is exactly what's going to happen. But looking at it and going, okay, well, if you go down this sort of path, they come with higher maintenance costs. If you go down that sort of path, it has a typically lower maintenance cost. And one of the things that's happening over time is as our general and oral health is improving, we've got much fewer people far fewer people in full dentures uh, come age 60 or 70, people are holding onto their teeth for longer. That's fantastic. We're getting great health, health outcomes from that for general and, and social health. But that then means that the teeth that are there require higher levels of maintenance, which takes a lot more time than replacing a set of dentures once every five or seven years. So obviously you anticipate that the, the cost is a big factor for your patients. Do you kind of proactively state what the expected estimated cost will be or do you wait for the patient to ask? Oh, no, it's, it's a part of the discussion straight up usually, especially when there's multiple options available. Um, it's it's one of those things, there's a lot to cover and, and there's a lot of pressure on practitioners and front desk. We've got COVID screening protocols at the front desk, so it's easy for them to slip a, uh, accidentally slip past the oh, and by the way, here's the estimate for the upcoming appointment, especially if we end up down a side track of, oh, so-and-so's been sick in the house, what does that mean for quarantine, all those other sorts of things. There is, a, at our practice, we've got a, a little bit of a, a checklist to work through of have, have we covered all those things, but it can be easy after several minutes on the phone call to, to accidentally skip over that. And it's not an intentional thing. Um, usually when somebody comes into an appointment, if there's multiple treatment options, part of that discussion is, what are the costs associated with this? Again, it can be one of those things that's easy to skip over if there's one obvious option. It's like, oh, this is the way to do it. And sometimes you get involved in the technical conversation around how, how it's going to last, what it's going to do, what are the procedural risks, uh, gaining informed consent and that sort of thing. But it should always be part of that conversation before any work is commenced, uh, that people should be aware of the cost. Amanda, could we talk about health healthcare more broadly, more broadly than just dentistry, about how you have seen patients prioritising or deprioritising their care when cost is a factor? They do. And I'd be really interested in Renata's um, thoughts here in relation to out-of-pocket expenses. I think everyone expects out-of-pocket expenses, but I think there is a question of the frequency of those expenses um, you know, if you're seeing someone regularly, as opposed to like a dentist, maybe once or twice a year, if you're seeing, for example, a mental health professional for, you know, your up to 10 sessions, for example, in terms of those out-of-pocket expenses, expenses, there is this concern, and this goes back to what Chris's comments were in terms of what the actual expenses associated with running a business are, in terms of when a patient is experiencing ongoing out-of-pocket expenses, it really impacts what they can do and they will choose not to, to, to have care, for example. And certainly in terms of there is, there is data there that 
psychiatrists, clin psychs, and so forth. The higher the out-of-pocket expenses, the more likely a patient is um, to not progress care, to delay care, not attend care, and so forth. So out-of-pocket expenses can have a real impact on a on a service by service basis. Um, and that is, you know, irrespective of what the treatment is or irrespective of who the provider is, that is certainly a reflection. Out-of-pocket costs are impacting everything from um, medical services in terms of pharmaceuticals, in terms of um, general practitioners, potentially the least of all, because they do sort of bulk bill services more than other providers. So out-of-pocket expenses are impacting, you know, decision-making choices across the board in terms of, of healthcare utilisation. So, Renata, do you have any thoughts on what Amanda has just said? Um, well, I guess it's not just about the impact of the out-of-pocket expenses, but that they're, they're also fragmented. So if we were to look, for example, at a chronic, chronic healthcare package uh, and someone accessing that, um, they may be, so instead of it being a sort of continuity of care between their, their primary healthcare provider and a range of services in a hub type setting, it tends to be fragmented. So they might be sent off to a physiotherapist over there, a podiatrist over here, an occupational therapist there, a social support group uh, down the road. And so what they then go through is this series of, of constant assessment um, and information gathering, which takes up maybe two of the five um, chronic care sessions they've been given to start with. None of that gets shared or recorded across. So the cost of care goes up because it's often repeated by several different providers, the same kind of care service, or there's not a coordination of what is available in a place-based commu local community area to meet that healthcare need. So it isn't just that there is a, a gap and there is always a gap, that you pay, um, even with with a package, you you, you get about seventy five percent back on average. Um, so you can you can still be paying anything up to thirty or forty dollars for a physio visit, um, or for to see a psychologist, for example. And if you're on a low fixed income, such as a say a disability pension, that's quite a significant percentage of your weekly income. So you've made that commitment. You've made that commitment as a to your healthcare journey and your and and your recovery journey if that's applicable. Um, but then there are all these other obstacles that increase the cost. I look for forward to ways that we can reduce that kind of um, fixedness in the system by creating more healthcare hubs that are place-based, community-driven, and primary care-driven. Mm, and, and Chris, from the practitioner perspective, obviously one way of reducing cost is to reduce the number of visits. Are there strategies that you employ to make more efficient when patients do come and visit you or other things to minimise cost for the patients? One of the things we often work on is how, how do we get to see people less often? Uh, if we're doing our job well as a uh, practitioner, then we're working on prevention and um, ways of avoiding people coming back and seeking active care. Sometimes, that, unfortunately, the, the horse is bolted, um, but we can at least work on maintaining what remains there. Uh, and, and our goal within our practice is certainly to see people as, as least often as possible, um, which allows us to, to get on and do other things instead. I often say that uh, if I wasn't doing dentistry, because we've had the successful uh, way of preventing all dental diseases, I'd find something else to do with my time. But uh, we're not there yet, unfortunately. Uh, so having that discussion, what, what can I do better? How, how can I avoid coming back so often? Um, 
Yeah, one of the points that Renata raised earlier is the, the bouncing from practitioner to practitioner and uh, spending a lot of that time establishing what's going on. And I often find it's one of the frustrations from patients that they, they feel they've got to tell their story again. I've, I've witnessed it from family members attending hospitals and they're in the emergency department. Different practitioners come around, they've got to tell their story again and again. Uh, they're, they're frustrated by what appears to be a lack of communication. Being on the healthcare provider side of things, though, the there's an element of you need to hear from the patient firsthand what's going on, what are their symptoms, how are they feeling and all of that sort of stuff, because there's a real danger that if you're picking that up from other people, that you're missing some subtleties in that. We often hear of uh, diseases that are misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed or not diagnosed for, for an extended period of time. And so that process of going through, retelling your story, establishing what's going on, each person you're telling that to has got a different perspective that they're coming from. There's different filters, there's different things going on that day. You might put a different emphasis on things and so from a quality of care point of view it's actually a process that patients need to go through to, to get good quality of care although it doesn't look like it on, on the receiving end uh, and then when you translate that into a private arrangement that all takes time to sit down and discuss with people and that's where we get back to the time is money so it is certainly a challenging area I don't have a solution for that but I acknowledge that that is a part of the problem. Amanda just on the solutions I wonder whether you could tell us if you've seen any kind of innovations or workarounds or any that you think could become mainstream to kind of start to um, challenge some of these issues? To me, there's a couple of things that I've been hearing in the conversation to date. And one is that prevention is better than cure. And the importance of um, establishing, maintaining relationships. If we could all have a GP or something that we can maintain and a, a dentist that we can maintain that relationship that we don't have to repeat um, our background to that, you know, that will certainly aid the efficiency of the system. Then I think there's a question of those of us within the community who currently have significant needs, particularly in terms of socio-economic um, factors. And if you have um, lots of chronic comorbidities, for example, therefore, you know, they're often co-associated and, you know, which is leading to which. Um, so I think there's a question of within the system, how can we look to support those who are most affected at the moment while supporting prevention um, as we go? Health literacy, I think, is crucial in all of this, and this is being touched on throughout the conversation for all of us. Information is key to, to decision-making. Some of the, the aspects that Renata was talking about, you know, this goes to case management, and there is certainly some of it in, in relation to... to um, people presenting to hospitals within Tasmania in terms of acute care, in terms of frequent presenters, in terms of how can we actually taking a person-centric approach in terms of what is their actually actual situation and doing case management with them in terms of those who, with really high needs and high-frequency presenters, for example. If we can get some form of, of managed care for them to support them to, to improve efficiencies, um, I think that will certainly aid the, the perspective of the consumer in terms of the individual who's needing care and hopefully should aid um, the efficiency within the system as well. Mm. Renata, I'm wondering if you could talk to us about, um, I guess, or reiterate what you see as the priorities for safer care for patients and their families when it comes to accessible health care. First of all, we make package, we make 
make package care fit for purpose. So we fit it to the person, not to the package. So instead of having an arbitrary number of sessions, for example, each, each person who is living with, um, with that chronic condition has a tailored package that is supported by their local GP service. And hopefully we will begin to shift funding models and system models that base um, GPs as central services in the community. And within that service, we have your GP, you have allied health, you have a nurse, you have a mental health worker, and, and we have a health hub. And that we also have an effective digital system um, through My Health. And first of all, we fix it, and then we embed some of the new and emerging tools. For example, we've got the new National Initial Assessment Referral Tool, which is called IAR for mental health and support. Um, and this is able, GPs are able to then embed in their daily practice um, in gathering information with with some um, health consumers, use that tool digitally to help support their case case management of, of um, individuals and families. And that doesn't replace communication on a one-to-one -one level. I agree with Chris that um, the personal relationship is central to effective healthcare. Uh, trust, uh, responsibility and care um, and working together as a team uh, on your healthcare journey. So it's about workforce development. So developing our workforce so that they have feel that they can more effectively manage digital, new digital systems and digital tools, that they can improve their communication skills with consumers, and that they understand emerging health systems, uh, health literacy, health promotion, and other aspects of care. So it's about workforce development. It's about system change that doesn't necessarily have a cost. It's just about doing it better. Uh, and it's about refocusing care to individuals and tailored packages of care centralised at a local level. Thank you. Amanda, do you have anything that you'd like to add? I'd like to highlight a couple of things that I think that can be easily done to assist consumers and they go to actually system level um, process factors and we all, all have access to safety nets, for example, through Medicare. But um, if you have multiple people on a Medicare card, you actually have to register for that everyone on that Medicare card to contribute to the same safety net. In terms of for pharmaceutical services, we have you actually have to physically ask your pharmacist to register you for the pharmaceutical benefit safety scheme. I don't see why that isn't being undertaken automatically, and again, why everyone on a Medicare card isn't being registered for um, the pharmaceutical benefit safety net. So again, I think there are things happening at a system level that could be undertaken um, comparatively efficiently, given the data that is being collected, that would actually support significant out-of-pocket costs, um, pharmaceuticals being one of them. So um, I think there is stuff that is, is happening at a system level. I'd also highlight there's actually a medical cost finder on the government, uh, on the Department of Health's website that enables you to compare costs um, or what the median cost is for a specialist within your area. Also about providing healthcare providers with information about what medical specialists, so your GP providing information to your GP so they can understand what is being, what medical um, specialists will charge before they actually uh, refer you on to various medical specialists and so forth. So I think information is really key. We need to improve information across the board to um, consumers and providers alike. Chris, would you like to, to finish off with anything? Talk to your healthcare provider. Um, open discussion, 
try and get over any stigma that's associated with it. Your healthcare provider's there to help you. They're there to work with you. The, there's no judgment uh, around uh, ability to afford or not. It's one of the many barriers that we deal with on a regular basis. And we'll do our best to provide you with the best services we can and work with you to, to see what we can achieve or, or refer you on to other places. And Renata, to round us out, do you have any further comments about what consumers should be able to expect from their health practitioner when it comes to the cost of the care that they're seeking? I agree that a health consumer should be able to say, my healthcare team listens and understands my needs. They prioritise and respect my choices. They support me to set goals and achieve them in, in healthcare. And I don't miss services because of where I live my income, my background or my lived experience in the healthcare journey. Well, thank you to my guests, Renata, Chris and Amanda, uh, for really building a comprehensive portrait of what it looks and feels like when cost is a barrier to good healthcare and what some of the strategies and resources are out there. You've woven lived experience with evidence in a really helpful way. So thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you, Tash, for this opportunity to talk and to bring a consumer voice to the table uh, to help improve our healthcare system. Thanks so much, Tash, for, for um, having me on the, on the panel, for having such an important conversation um, for all of us. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We would love if you could subscribe, link to the podcast, share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you have any feedback, please email us at communications at Take care.